from the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of, I think it's Fraser River in Lillooet, British Columbia, Canada. It is now June 2016, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unplugged, raw, and personal. Today, at our virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, we have Shirley Hardy-Ricks. Hello, Shirley. Uh, good morning from Melbourne, Australia. Apologies from Brian, who's stranded in the snow somewhere in the mountains in Victoria. And just just for record, we did try to connect with Brian, but we're unable to, um, uh, obviously because he's snowed in. And yes, I, I believe that's the reason. <laughs> and many of us will be surprised to even hear you talk about snow in Australia. Oh, no, we do have mountains. They're just not very high, and we don't usually have snow this early in the season. So I think... Um, as a friend of ours uh, put on Facebook last night that Brian just wanted to be near the snow because he was in snow at this time last year in Norway. I think we call those hills, really, not, not so much mountains. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, in our hills. <laughs> and also we have Grant Johnson. Grant? Hi, I'm calling in from Swansea in Wales. We've just finished one event and I'm heading off to the next. So there's Grant in the, in the UK. Um, and Sam Manicom, who is normally in the UK, is now, where are you, Sam? I'm at Lake Havasu, which is on the border between Arizona and California. And it's 51 degrees Celsius here at the moment, and it's sunny. And funny enough, I can see London Bridge just down the road, uh, which seems to be surviving quite well away from the British rain. London Bridge, you sure that isn't heat stroke you're experiencing? <laughs> well, um, the story behind this is that um, an American millionaire thought that he was buying Tower Bridge, which is the one literally with the towers that goes over the Thames. Um, and he, yeah, London Bridge he bought. And when they unpacked it here in the, in the desert, they realized that it was the wrong bridge. <laughs> and we also have Graham Field. Graham, welcome back. We missed you for one or two episodes. Yeah, hi, I'm back. I'm back, still in Bulgaria, and uh, my temperature doesn't beat Sam's, and there's no uh, historic bridges in my view. <laughs> so for today, we're starting off with who has our topics for today, because <laughs> I, am, I, I am situated, as I said, in Lillooette here, and we've, we've uh, searched all around to find, because we don't stay in campgrounds or anything like that. We, we can't. We have to do it on the, on the low-budget thing as we're traveling around here. So um, we found a campground here that's a municipal campground where you can use it for the day for free, which was fine because it gave us a spot to actually be, and we're using a really strong uh, cellular internet signal here, but I'm in a Jeep with wires everywhere, and, and I've got my microphone in my hand, my computer in my lap, and it's well, it's quite the scene. I wish I could actually show you the, the, the picture of this, but um, maybe I don't want to after all. So who has the topics in front of them? I do. Okay, what are we, uh, what are we starting with? The importance of getting some off-road riding experience. Okay, here suggested we go. Suggested by Sam. Right, I've got them here now. Excellent. So, Sam, why don't, why don't you take away this? Okay, well, I mean, the first thing I need to say is that I think that you can do a big trip without um, any off-roading experience at all. I and many others have, have proved that. Um, as you know, I'd only been riding a bike for three months when I got to the edge of the Sahara Desert, and, and I didn't know diddly squat. It was more a case of hanging on and letting the, back, the bike tell me what to do and try not to fall off. Um, but um, just recently, I started doing some training. And my goodness, the trip would have been far easier if I had that training before I set off. And for me, it, it just cut down the fear of the unknown 
um, it made me realize what my own ability actually was. Um, and it increased the feeling of actually that's a sidetrack. It looks a bit on the rough side, but hey, let's let's go and have a look. Um, I'm not so much afraid of it anymore. Um, and yeah, it's it, just the whole thing about learning how to stand up and, and what it does. But I also think that if I'd done the training, it would have helped me a lot um, with on-road riding too. I would have understood how the balance of the bike works and, you know, just dodging potholes and dodging other traffic and things like that would have been a really useful side spin from um, doing some road training first. I think the that uh, mastering your off-road riding, or, or at least getting more comfortable with your off-road riding, um, I think allows you to enjoy your experience more. Like less focused on the paranoia of dropping your bike, or, or how can you handle this, or can you handle this, to enjoying where you're getting into. I mean, I, that, I think that's an obvious one. Yeah, I've been pushing and trying to get people to take off-road training for as long as I can remember. I started off in motocross and then went to road racing. And along the way, I learned that off-road training is a huge help for everybody, whether you're a pure street rider or not. It, it doesn't matter. Off-road skills are a huge help for everybody, and, they, and you need, just need to work at it. It's not that complicated. The, the basics are pretty straightforward, and a couple of three days of training will make a huge difference in your ability to ride anywhere, especially off-road, of course, but also on the street. Graham? Uh, how do you feel about uh, off-road training versus just learning on your own? Um, yeah, I probably could have used some. Um, I, when I did my trip to Mongolia, in fact, and the trip to Iraq, I hadn't had any. I mean, I'd ridden a little bit off-road, but no one had ever told me the do's and don'ts. And it was only when I got back and a guy at one of the shows actually, you know, did off-road training. And he said, you really are a, a crap rider, aren't you? He said, why, why don't you let me teach you a few things? So uh, so I went out with him. And, yeah, he taught me a couple of uh, – it was quite funny because it was just sort of green laning in the UK. And I just kept coming off. And uh, and it was just basic stuff like bridle paths where horses go. And the, the, the KLR would do like a 180-degree a, a spin and throw me off. And uh, at first he was sort of, uh, he sort of, hum- sort of being polite. He said, well, I'm not quite sure what happened there, but carry on, you know. And, I, and then I did it again. And he, he said, he's going, I, I really don't know what you're doing there. <laughs> and I was losing my sense of humour. Uh, but... Um, he taught me a couple of really good techniques and uh, yeah it definitely came in handy and I probably could have used it before I went away but again I mean some of the funnest times of the trips were just finding myself well I suppose out of my depth really but just dealing with it just dealing with it because that was sort of throwing myself into the unknown so uh, yeah I probably would have been safer and uh, with, with it uh, um, but I didn't have any and I'm still here <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of the fact that um, if if you do if you did have the training before you went that you just um, you'd, you'd probably be able to go much farther than what you'd go to begin with and it just you know be more enjoyable. Well, I don't ride, of course, so that sort of counts me out. But I know Brian grew up riding his motorbike on the banks of the Murray River um, years before he had a license to ride on the road. So I guess that would account for some off-road training. 
Well, I think there's the, the, the school of hard knocks that you can do, and you certainly learn from that, I, I think, a lot. Um, but I think you learn very slowly, and you make a lot of mistakes um, on the way. Whereas, and we, we've been running this, um, this series now, the Rider Skills Series, with Brett Tax from PSSOR, uh, the, the Puget Sound Safety Off-Road Training, uh, on our regular show, as you guys have probably heard. And, um, you know, I've learned so much just from listening to him on that. But you can, you can hear it if you haven't taken a course. You can, you can hear that through some proper instruction, you could probably really avoid months of, of messing around um, by learning the basics to begin with and probably have a much better experience. Uh, I agree with what you just said, Jim. It took me about six months before I stopped being afraid of dirt roads. So I was halfway down Africa. And perhaps if I'd had some, um, some dirt road training before I left, um, that might have been just a couple of months. So, yeah, I think if you have some basic off-road training early on, your skills improve at a huge rate. And it, there's no reason to be afraid of dirt roads. You should look at dirt roads and say, oh, this is gonna be fun and have a good time with it. If you have some basic skills and it doesn't take that much. And that's for me uh, is, is the frustrating thing is that people don't seem to think that they need any training and off they go. And yes, of course you can do all kinds of trips around the world. Lots of people have done it with no training, but as Sam was said, you would have been much better off with some training. And if you can get some training, you'll find that it's it's not scary. It doesn't have to be scary. And you can be much, much safer with very little training. It doesn't take a lot to make a big difference. Yeah, because part of it is is learning what the bike can do, isn't it? Yeah. The average street rider hits a little bit of gravel or a little bit of dirt, and all of a sudden the bike starts moving around, and they get terrified because the bike's not supposed to move around. So they clench up and make it worse, and then they fall. And... And they, they just don't have to be. Uh, I was working with some gr- a group doing some basic training and took one guy out on some gravel and the terror, the li- sheer terror on his face at five miles per hour on an easy gravel road was, was quite something. And it took me about almost two hours to get him to the point where he could stand up, relax, and cruise along at 30 to 40 miles an hour without any problems. But it really took a lot of work because he had never ridden off-road in his life. And this was with an 1100 GS. You have to get out and learn that it's okay for the bike to move around. It's okay for it to wiggle. The bike really doesn't want to fall down. The bike wants to keep going straight. But your average street rider, as soon as they hit the dirt, it's moving, so therefore it's going to fall down. So you really got to work on that. You really say that with construction zones, don't you? I mean, at least here in North America, you get a construction zone where there's gravel down, and people, a lot of times, if someone's riding a street bike, you'll see them, they get really nervous about it. Like, it's a, it's a huge deal to hit this very small stretch of controlled gravel. Yeah, and there's no reason for it. Once you have the basic concepts and have done a little bit of training off-road, you realize that, yeah, this is okay, and you just move along, and you let the bike do its thing and trust the bike. And I think that's probably the thing I say the most when I'm doing any training at all, is trust the bike. It'll keep going. Just keep moving, keep your speed up, and you'll be fine. Okay, I think I'm online here now. Oh, there oh good morning. Yay. <laughs> and Sam's here, too. Brian, is it snowing? Um, there haven't been any cars go past, uh, so nothing to break up the ice. So we're going to wait. We're going to have to wait here for a while, I think. I reckon it'll be spring out. before I see you. Well, well hold on. <laughs> let, let, me, let me get a question here. Now we've just been able to connect with Brian, who is stuck in the mountains or hills in Australia, where it's snowing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, think, <laughs> I think we have everyone back in the group. I just want to make sure, Sam, are you with us? 
I'm back again. Fiddling back and forth. Very nice. So, Brian, so tell us about the situation. It's very early in the morning. (laughs) You've got us Uh, intrigued now. Yeah, right. Well, I came up to um, Canberra to organise a meeting for a ride of about 2,500 people in September. Uh, with a couple of mates, and uh, we decided, oh, okay, we'll, we'll we'll beat the first snows. We'll go across the Snowy Mountains Highway, which is aptly named, uh, and make our way down to beautiful uh, Murray River and camp down there. And uh, as we we're coming up into the mountain ranges, uh, into the national park, this front came over, and um, the rain turned to a bit of. Uh, white stuff sort of coming down on the ground and then it bucketed down and within 30 seconds we had uh, about an inch of black ice on the road cars running off the road everywhere, I've come down uh, slid down the road across the road in front of the bloody snow plough coming the other way (laughs) 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 it was very graceful, everyone said it was very graceful And um, we had to turn around. We had to, only had about 10 k's to go to get down the mountain, but uh, there's no way known we could get through. Three of us on bikes, three of us came down. So <laughs> Maybe um, I'm naive, Brian, we, but in Canada, we always stop with motorcycles. We don't ride them in, in the ice and the snow. <laughs> <laughs> Not without studs. Yeah, well, we, we thought, everyone said, well, you, you could have one hour earlier and we would have been fine. Uh, this front just hit so hard. So we we found a pub. We came back to a pub and sat in front of a roaring fire with a beer. And uh, then all these other travellers started to come in. Uh, there was about 20 cars stuck up on the road. Three had come off. So nothing's getting through. Nothing at all. So uh, we'll assess it when the sun comes up and uh, hopefully a couple of tra- trucks will go through and we'll uh, break up the ice for us and we'll tenderly make our way down to lower climbs. Brian, you're a true Australian. If you're going to get stuck in bad weather in Australia, then you've got to do it outside a pub. Exactly. (laughs) That just stands to reason, really. (laughs) No, it's a big adventure. I've got a guy with us who hasn't hasn't read much, and he's got a big smile on his face. He's got a sore shoulder, but he's okay. He's got a big smile on his face. He said, this is great. (laughs) Brian, let me ask you this. Has he had any off-road training? Uh, no. <laughs> because this, yes, is, <laughs> this is our first topic that we were just getting through. And and Graham suggested that we talk about um, our the last time we dropped our bike, which obviously you did more than a drop here. But uh, we, were talking about, we were talking about the importance of getting some off-road riding experience before you head off on an adventure. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's nothing like in-house adventure and, and training as well, I suppose, and that's... Uh, what Robin's had, but um, yeah, I think it's very important that uh, you, you, you take the opportunity and um, uh, get some off-road training. You know, I was brought up on uh, riding in the deserts and the sand around Mildura and herding sheep across uh, scrublands and stuff like that. Um, and sometimes you take it for granted. And uh, when you get uh, a new guy on a bike and they don't know how to uh, shift their weight back or forward or uh, counterbalance when um, you're going around uh, um, uh, rough terrain, which is slipping underneath you and all that sort of stuff. Uh, even with all that, mate, uh, the best of us come down at some stage. <laughs> 
Well, we were going to talk about the um, Graham's suggestion the last time we dropped our bike. So, Graham, you're going to have to go first. And I heard you sort of chuckle right there about the last time you dropped your bike. Just last time I went out on it, really. <laughs> me too, Graham. Me too. <laughs> well, I did. Go, I did. No, I did go. Well, anyway, it was it was last week, week before I went to Romania, as I was saying, and I was with my friend Kathy. It's quite. I'm on my little KLR650. She's on this big old GS, and she's only little. And uh, she wanted to wild camp. She'd never wild camped, and so I led us into this wood and. and found us an idyllic spot but it was there must have been like logging trucks gone through and there was these two big ruts each side filled with water and I got through okay and she dropped her bike it wasn't bad it was one of those brilliant drops where you just take a photograph of Facebook and then picked up and off she went anyway so we made camp everything was good apart from we'd underestimated the alcohol uh, that we needed so I said I'll go back into the village it was only little ways away and I'll go back and get some more went through the same muddy puddle Fell over like a little boy, just splash, went down, <laughs> managed to smash my mirror, and uh, and but I was just soaked, and it was stinking, stagnant, horrid water. So it was about two minutes down the road, I go into this little village shop, and there's an old Romanian bubber in there, and the toothless guy sitting on the chair just talking away the evening, and in comes this stinking, dripping, long-haired... <laughs> Like uh, in need of some alcohol. <laughs> oh, and crisps as well. I need crisps too. <laughs> so, get back to where Kathy is, promising that I'll, I'll be there. And the fire, I mean, it was the idyllic campsite. We were secluded, but we had a beautiful mountain view. We had a fire. We were by a stream. It was ideal. So I got back and just like stripped off, jumped in the stream, washed this horrible stagnating water off me. And uh, and so I still got some pretty cool looking mud marks on the bike. But yeah, that was the last time I dropped my bike last week. <laughs> Grant? Yeah. Um... On our world trip, we were pretty lucky. We only went down three times, but twice with Susan on it and once with me on it. And the last one was so weird, I've got to tell you. Susan went into a store, and I stopped on this crowned road. Now, think about a crowned road. I'm on the right-hand side. This is southern Africa, and I'm getting tired of waiting, so I put the side stand down. That worked pretty good, and I was just standing there. Or, or so I should say, I was just sitting on the bike, pretty vertical, but quite comfortable. Susan comes out, so you know how you get a bike up off the side stand? You give it a bit of a yank, right? Well, I gave it a bit of a yank, except that I was vertical. So I yanked it and crashed, instantly threw it to the ground on the right-hand side. <laughs> Susan just looked at me and said, what are you doing? Uh, well, um, <laughs> Oh, I will tell you one of my many... I can't remember the last time I dropped my bike, and it's not because it's been so long. It's because I do it so often. I can't really remember. But I'll tell you an interesting one that I had was I was riding with a friend, and he's riding ahead of me. We're moving quite quickly along this this gravel logging road, and it comes up to a bend. He's he's quite a ways ahead of me, and he decides to stop on the bend, in the middle of the of the bend, in our lane, right out of sight of me at a spot where the only section in probably, you know, 50 kilometers, oh no, 100 kilometers that is 
is asphalt. It's paved. The corner, for some reason, is paved and covered with gravel. So as I come booting up, I see him there, and I touch the brakes, and of course it just locks up and skids, and I'm doing everything I can. I have the anti-locks turned off because we're on dirt mostly, and I'm doing everything I can to stop the thing, and it ends up going down and skidding along a little bit. It was a non-issue, but it uh, it could have been really something. At one point, it uh, <laughs> it felt like it was going to high side on me, and uh, managed to wrestle it to the uh, to the point where it stopped, and only ended up with a, a scratch on the bike. That was it. It didn't even harm my clothing. So that was my uh, that's that's at least a good one that I had not that long ago. <laughs> yeah, well, Shirley can tell you about one of mine uh, where she had to come up to the Wangaratta Hospital to see me, didn't you, Shirley? <laughs> Yeah, I did. That was another pirouette down the road, wasn't it? Oh, no, that was a dirt track head-on into a four-wheel drive. Yeah, the 1150GS, um, the front end uh, ended up being planted in the winch keepers of a four-wheel drive. Um, I was coming down the hill, a wet, slippery, muddy path uh, with a big drop-off on one side, cliff on the other. Come round the corner, and here's this four-wheel drive steaming up. My choices were run off the edge and drop down about 40 metres, slide under the car or hit it. I couldn't stop, he couldn't stop. So I ended up on his bonnet and uh, I uh, took the um, tank bag of, uh, that I I had on the bike with the camping gear in it, off with my um, (laughs) nether regions, shall I say. Uh, And uh, somehow or other, we're way out of phones here. Anyway, my mate, we got down to the uh, Wagnerada Hospital and uh, the doctor came in, how you going, Brian, and this or that, one thing or another, we'll check you out and cut your good Horizons Unlimited T-shirt off and check out your neck (laughs) and all the rest of it. And then... uh, he, uh, he lifted up the, he said, uh, where you saw us? I said, oh, ran down, the, down here. He, he lifted up the sheet and he said, oh, mate, it was black and blue. Everything was black and blue. And next thing, his nurses coming in going, oh, that must be painful. Oh, that hurts. And I can tell you from this side, it bloody will hurt. <laughs> <laughs> when you said where you got hurt and then they had to cut off your Horizons Unlimited, I thought you were going to say underwear. And it's like, where do you get that from? <laughs> We're not saying hey, you lied for you, Greg. You lied, mate. <laughs> well, this is beginning to sound a little bit like a crash and tell program. <laughs> so, so oh, to, good fun. On to topic two. And, and of course, I mean, for anyone listening, that uh, we're not laughing about crashing or anything. It's obviously looking at our latest mishaps with a, a bit of humor, which I think you have to do in life. You can't be too serious. Absolutely. So true. Topic two, riding gear, one or two-piece suits. I, I'm pretty stoked about this, actually, because I have no experience with a one-piece riding suit other than snowmobiling. So we're going to talk about the advantages and disadvantages and, and who likes them and, and um, what's it like to ride in, you know, in different kinds of weather. Who has tried a one-piece suit? I'm, I'm sure everyone's had two-piece suits. Yeah, I've had one-piece suits. Are you the only one? Anyone else? No, no, no I haven't. Oh, I, I, I had a uh, one-piece leather suit, but that was uh, um, speedway riding. I, I, I find pretty uncomfortable, actually, for um, uh, road riding. Not enough mo- movement, but that's just me. Graham, did I hear you in there? Yeah, I, 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 I've been sort of given them with, with bikes that I've bought, and 
But they, they've been, and you dislocate your arms trying to get them on. And uh, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and the water gathers in the crutch like it always does. I, I don't, I'm not a fan, really. Grant, since you're the one with the, the experience here, so tell us about your one-piece pre- one riding suit. <laughs> well, it's going back a very, very long way, about uh, 45 years back, when uh, rain suits were absolute, total rubbish. There was nothing that was even remotely close to waterproof. And then Rucka, which who I'd never heard of, but is a Finnish maker of, at that time, of um, sailing suits. They came out with a one-piece vinyl waterproof suit for motorcyclists. And living in Vancouver, which is the home of rain, uh, and riding all year round, I thought, this is the ticket. I've got to have one of these. And so I got one, and it was fantastic. It was absolutely waterproof, so long as it wasn't warm. If it was warm, it was just as wet inside from your own sweat <laughs> as it was on the outside. <laughs> but if it was cold, it was amazing. I absolutely loved that suit. And the truly amazing part is I've still got it. It's hanging up in a closet. But you do hold on to stuff for a long time. I haven't it for 40 years, but it's still there. Yeah, I just and it was flaming fluorescent orange, too, by the way. You saying that reminded oh, me that lovely. I did have a one-piece suit. I had a one-piece rain suit, which was, uh, I can't remember, it was Wet Skins, uh, I think was the name of it. It was like 25 years ago now, um, but uh, maybe a little bit more than that, doesn't matter. But uh, it was a one-piece riding suit, uh, or one-piece rain suit, and it was quite nice, actually. I didn't... I didn't use it an awful lot because obviously it's only for when it's raining. I never used it as a as a cold weather uh, cover or anything like that. But I did like it for the rain. I also had snowmobile suits back in those days for riding in the winter, and they work pretty well. But I, I and, and there's a lot of, or I shouldn't say there's a lot. There's a few very good American-made one-piece riding suits. Aristich makes a couple of excellent ones that people swear by, love, and think they're the best thing since sliced bread. And I think for the guy who wants to walk out of his house, get in his bike, drive to the office, take his riding suit off and step out in a suit or similar office type wear, it's, it's really good. But for long distance travel, adventure riding, etc., it's just a pain in the neck. You're, you're too stuck with temperature. It's too hard to take what? off the top and cool off. Like, you can't just throw off the jacket like you can with a two-piece suit. Yeah. Uh, having said that, Grant, um, Shirley, you might remember when we were in Vietnam, Guy, a friend of ours, had one of those one-piece riding suits with a zip that went right from the, uh, the top down to the bottom, and he just stepped out of it. Do you remember that? I do, I do, yeah. It, it was easy. He seemed to have no problem getting it on and off, and it certainly kept him clean on the very muddy roads that we were travelling on. Yeah, I, I agree. It, they do. But I think if you're just stopping for a couple of minutes and you want to get a drink and you want to throw your jacket off, you don't want to take the whole suit off, especially if it's covered in mud in the bottom half. He's had a zip that went down the side, um, Grant, and uh, mm-hmm. which looked really easy to get in and out of. You know, now, now with the new zips, which are uh, um, waterproof. Um, it looked quite easy. Mind you, he's a big fellow, and he did look like a big black condom there at some stages. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody has to try what what works for them and decide what they like. And it's, there's a lot of personal preference, but I think the preponderance of two-piece suits out there does say something that most people prefer the two-piece. 
I was wondering about that. Yeah. Is it because they, is it just easy to throw your jacket off or is it because some people are riding with other pants sometimes, so to speak? Well, you got some choices. Don't forget, in, in, in yeah, some parts of the world, by the way, Jim, <laughs> pants aren't what you think they are. There's trousers, and underneath the trousers, you wear pants. Oh, is that it? Trousers. So, give me the definition. A trouser is something that goes over your pants. <laughs> no, no. trousers is what you and I call pants. Right. Graham would be the only one that would ride without without trousers or pants. <laughs> Well, you, I think you get arrested three, three days on the road and run out, then you know. Sometimes you just got to ride commando. <laughs> which leads us into our, our our next topic, which is riding in extreme heat. And oh, I haven't finished my waterproof thing yet. Oh, well, let's let's hear your waterproof. Well, we did the one proof. We did the one piece thing, and then I thought we were going to go on to two piece things. I'm sorry, you're right. I'm jumping way ahead. I apologize. You just want this to be over, don't you, Jim? <laughs> you can already see yourself two days editing it. And you just want it over and finished. Two days if I'm really fast. <laughs> so, the, so two-piece. Yeah. Well, well, I was saying there, what, why are people riding with two-piece suits? What is the attraction? I mean, I ride with a two-piece suit, but I, I, I'm not really, like, I, I don't have that comparison other than that rain suit that I had. Uh, I just always picture a one piece being more of a of a pain for me. I'm not the type to wear a suit and go anywhere. I don't I don't go to work like you know and I, where I would have to stay clean for or anything like that. I I just think they're, they're more versatile, Jim. Um, a lot more versatile. Um, one thing that peeves me with the the riding suits now, the two piece ones, is the waterproof liner on the inside. If you're riding through weather that's very changeable, do you leave it in and get hot? Do you take it out, get some air through, and then when it rains, you have to take everything off to put the waterproof liner in? I'm a great believer in having um, a waterproof outer. Um, uh, rather than having to put those liners, those waterproof liners in and out of your jacket or, or your pants all the time. Mm. Yeah, I agree. We had the, the ruckus suits for years, and they have the waterproof inner liner. And I can tell you, convincing Susan to stop at the side of the road, take your trousers off, and put the, the waterproof inner liner on just wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Gee, I wonder sure. why. I wonder. <laughs> Showing off her Rises Unlimited underwear. <laughs> what about the other way around, though? You know, a lot of people ride with mesh gear. Um, I, I ride with a, a guy sometimes who has, he's got a mesh jacket, and he just puts his raincoat over top of that, and that seems pretty convenient. Yeah, a lot of the rain suits, like the, the Rucka suits, are uh, a thorough mesh. The, the Touratex Companiero suit is a mesh, or let's say very breathable, and you can see the sun through them. Um, so there's lots of air going through, and then a waterproof outer on the Touratech and a waterproof inner on the Rucka, which is a very interesting difference in thinking and philosophy. Mm. Mm. Graham, did you have something to add? Yeah, it, it's, it's not incredibly knowledgeable, but more um, coincidental, because it was exactly this time last year when I was heading off to the hub in Ireland, which is where Grant's going now, because it's this weekend. Yes. And I left uh, sunny Essex without any waterproofs, and I was going through bloody Wales. Of course it's going to rain. What was I thinking? <laughs> and to Ireland, the Emerald Isle. There's a reason it's green. And um, so I had to stop in a builder's, uh, like, a builder's merchant to, to get something waterproof and all I have was this bright green high visibility 
top and bottoms, um, which I just ended up wearing. But I tell you what, I mean, they're, they're not, they were super cheap and they're, they're not branded at all. Well, they are, it says Juice and Builders Merchants, but um, they're... Uh, <laughs> They were really good. And I just, again, wore them on, on the trip to Romania, uh, well, only the bottom half, and was in some of the worst rain I'd ever had on the way back into Bulgaria. And uh, they were really pretty good. So, uh, and the thing about the, the main reason, I, and I generally I have more experience of getting wet than I do of wearing waterproofs. And the reason for that is because they do take up quite a lot of room. And generally, you, you sort of, your Gore-Texy uh, clothes, will be pretty waterproof. And when I'm doing a long trip, I figure if it's really going to rain that hard, either I can stop because there aren't any real time limits or I get a hotel and dry everything out. So I tend not to travel with waterproofs that much. With the with two-piece suits, um, I wear um, a waterproof over jacket a lot of the time just because I feel the cold and that breaks the wind. But with the waterproof pants, I always found... The- trying to get them on over my riding boots and my pants, I would have to lie down on the side of the road to get into them. And I found a pair in um, the US when we were there at REI that had zips from the waist to the ankle. And they are so easy to get on and off. I can I can get them on in you know a couple of minutes and they are just brilliant. They're so probably not as entertaining starts- though, Shirley. Well, I guess it depends which side of it you're looking at. When I'm on lying on the ground, <laughs> I don't think it's funny. But you standing watching me, you probably would find it amusing. So, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah, I think the full zip makes a huge difference. I have them on my uh, Aerostitch pants that I, that I have now, the 81 pants, and it's zipped from the top to bottom. Really, like they just make all the difference. I don't even have to unzip them all the way. These things, they zip up no. to a point where they sort of have a little flap where it gives you a sort of a natural stop. You can go up all the way, but it sort of stops you there, and that's all you need to put your, your pants on. I find putting them on is just so much faster and taking them off them than what I've wrestled with uh, with all my pants in the past. Yeah, I'm I had a really nice pair that we used in South in um, South America, and the zips went up about halfway up the the thigh. They were just brilliant from that point of view. But I blooming well didn't strap them on the bike well enough, and we were riding off road, and um, yeah, well, what guess what fell off? We spent the next um, <laughs> days looking in Bogota for a replacement pair. Um, nothing, nowhere. So we we did um, what Graham suggested just now and um, went to a builder's merchants. Um, the only trouble was the only ones that I could get were made for. Um, short Indian men with very large waists. So I was inevitably dry from from the nipples to the knees. Oh, what a sight that would be. We've had a great bonding experience on this trip because we've got, my waterproofs aren't that good and I've got to lay down to get them off. So John uh, grabs my legs uh, of my uh, wet weathers and pulls them off and then he lays down on the ground and I grab his. So it's a real good male bonding experience, I think, take each other's wet weather pants off. I don't know that you're going to be allowed out on your own anymore, Brian. (laughs) Wow. Somebody needs to film the evidence. (laughs) (laughs) I want to see pictures. Well, are we ready to talk about riding in extreme heat? I'm sure Brian is. If you want. <laughs> yeah, give, give me some sunshine, please. It's, it's 51 degrees here, Brian. You can have some of that with the greatest of pleasure. 
Oh, thanks, mate. No, yeah, okay. right in extreme heat. degrees wow. Celsius. Yep. Yep. Wow. wow. That's hot. I've been riding pretty much from um, about 45 to 51 for the last four or five days. Uh, so, uh, um, I'm, I thought I'd done well at 50 it's, degrees. It's really, Sinai. Yeah, that's uh-huh. hotter than we had in Tajikistan. Yeah, but Sam, right. you're in an air-conditioned stairwell, aren't you? <laughs> um, well, I am, actually, at the moment. <laughs> well, it's not the air conditioning. It's not that hot, but um, you know what I mean. <laughs> So riding in extreme heat and staying safe while you do it, some tips um, we're looking for. Um, of course, we have to talk about being hydrated and, and dehydrated and um, I guess signs of heat stroke, things like that. Um, who has a lot of experience riding in extreme heat? And I, and I have to lean to Brian, I'll bet. Yeah, look, uh, over here, yes, we do ride in, in uh, very hot weather. Um, camelbacks are essential. Uh, and you know you hear about guys putting all sorts of things in their camelbacks uh, uh, but me I just prefer straight water now if you need sugar uh, to, to keep you up from, from getting dehydrated and getting lethargic and all those sorts of things and slow in your, your reaction times well that's a classic sign of dehydration so and I, I would drink three litres um, up to six litres of water a day when you're travelling in extreme heats anything above say uh, 30 degrees uh, Celsius and above, you should be sipping water all the time. Don't wait until you get thirsty. You've got to sip, sip, sip water to stop your body. By the time you get thirsty, you are are dehydrated. Seriously dehydrated? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. So my, my, my tip is, for goodness sake, if you're going to ride anywhere on any long adventure trip, take a camelback. You must have some 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 something like that that you can get to immediately. I'm having a sip every couple of three minutes. Just keep sipping a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and keep it going, keep it going. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Yeah, I ride with one as well. It's not a camelback, but it's it's that style. It's a dromedary yeah, insert right. on your back with a and and I think the thing with it is that, that it makes it so that you you do have the the liquid there. The, the I put water in mine as well. You do have the water there available, and if you're sipping away at it, or if it's available rather, you will sip away at it rather than waiting until that time when you stop, which might be what you know every hour, a couple of hours even. Yeah, and it's by funny because it can be I, too late. I don't ride with the camelback, and that, the reason that I don't is because I don't like the weight on my back. But um, I always have a, um, a small cooler bag, and I'm stopping every 15, 20 minutes, and I'm taking you know a good, good slug of, of water when I do that. But but never cold. Um, I think cold water actually is not particularly good for you. Cool water, when you're on a, a long hot ride, makes an awful lot of difference. But I, I like to get off the bike and have a look at the view and um, you know just rest my backside a little bit anyway. So that works quite nicely for me. Um, one, one of my top tips with um, keeping um, water cool when you're traveling is um, to have a couple of tank panniers and um, put your water bottles in, in that so that they're sitting in the slipstream. And you just put a tiny little hole in the neck of two of the bottles and have those at the front. So as you're riding, um, the water's slopping out of the hole, Just and, and I mean small holes, but it wicks into the canvas, and then as you're, um, you're riding along, the slipstream is evaporating that water, and that keeps those two bottles of water um, cool. Nice. It makes a very pleasant drink, and I just reach down and, and take those. 
Another one that I used to do with um, with backpacking was uh, you can put a just to fool yourself into thinking the water's cooler. Put a, 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 a dab of mint in your water. That'll give it a cool, refreshing uh, taste uh, as you drink it. If you're drinking, if you're forced to drink warm water, one of the other things I find as well is stainless steel. It doesn't always work on the bike, but a stainless steel container tends to keep your water. I find cooler. It doesn't allow the sun to heat it up as fast, and it's just a lot nicer to drink out of. It tastes better than hot plastic. That's for sure. Mm. One thing I always remember uh, hearing, there was this, uh, what they call them, the uh, the guys who go off, the search and rescue guys, and he said the majority of people I find who are dehydrated or passed out from dehydration still have water in their containers. And I always remember that because I'm kind of resourceful and always sort of waiting until, you know, there might be a bigger emergency when I need my emergency rations. But it's a good idea to remember it's better to drink it if you've got it than to save it for when it's too late. <laughs> the other, the other yes. tip I find for uh, extreme hot weather is a lot of guys take their jacket off because it's so hot and they open their face shield up and that dehydrates you even faster put that jacket yeah. on put the face shield down and keep the wind from dehydrating you it makes a huge difference can i give you a, the statistic on that sure. when the air temperature is above 93 degrees fahrenheit i don't know what that is in um in celsius but when it's above 93 fahrenheit the wind actually heats up the body rather than the slipstream having any effect at cooling the body, which yes. is why um, it makes so much more sense when you're riding in any real temperature um, to zip everything up tight. Um, all right, you know, the air vents, little ones, but that's enough. And the key there is just when you get off your bike, um, then the jacket comes off first and then the helmet, but of course only in the shade. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I don't know I'm a, I, I'm a great fan of, of keeping the jacket on and I, I left um, where I was staying this morning at 4am because um, the temperatures were you know, really so hot and I tend to get off the road by midday because um, I, I just don't want to be spending the hottest part of the day just sitting on my bike baking I'm not having any fun, I'm not enjoying the view, I've got no inclination to stop and look at anything um, and I know the risk is just huge for, for getting ill. Um, one of the things is I think um, people need to get into the habit of wearing long-sleeved um, exercise shirts made of, of moisture-wicking material because those, even underneath your jacket, help wick away the moisture and that does help, help keep you cool. Oh. And one of the other things that I tend to do is when it's really hot, I'll, I'll give my T-shirt and my bandana a really good soaking and I'll put them on um, dripping wet and then I'll ride and that makes an amazing difference but you know there are even trick things around nowadays that you can get um, you can get um, crystal filled um, bandanas for, for wearing when, when it's really hot um, I haven't actually tried one one of my friends said to me well you know in the States when I'm riding I just find the ice buckets you know the ice bins at um, petrol stations and I throw my helmet in there for, for 20 minutes I mean the ice is all in plastic bags so it doesn't do any hy hygiene damage but I said to him, good grief, so you're riding down the road with a head feeling like the snowman and the rest of your body feeling like Thomas Tank Engine. <laughs> yeah, our favorite trick when we're riding is to pour water down our jackets. Susan, on the yeah. back, she'll literally pour water down my jacket, down the collar, and wow, that can really cool you off. Uh, when we did the Sinai trip, we started in Cairo early in the morning, and it was supposed to take an hour to go through Cairo, and that was complete, total rubbish. It was more like four or five hours. And we ended up doing the Sinai in 50-degree heat in the shade. 
for mo all day long. And it was even dark by the time we got to our destination in Sharm el Sheikh. And we stopped as often as we could. We were pouring gallons of water down our throats and down our backs and soaking our jackets. And this was in the days of leather. We were wearing leather jackets and leather pants. And it was just get everything as soaking wet as you can, drink as much as you can, and keep going and keep everything zipped up tight. That was our basic philosophy. It's all we could do. We survived it all right. I think the hottest place I've ridden before this was coming through um, the Sudan, and I drank 14 liters of water um, during the course of the day. Um, Grant, we were also wearing um, leathers. Um, yeah. But that night when I went to sleep, I felt totally thirsty and there wasn't any liquid available in the morning. My tongue was actually stuck to the top of my mouth and I had to go and find something to drink um, to actually unstick my tongue. It's very entertaining talking with the top, top of my tongue stuck to my, my mouth. But anyway, um, my jacket, that leather jacket had absorbed so much sweat during the course of the day. And when I'd thrown it on the ground that night, um, it had obviously dried in the in the position that I'd just thrown it on the ground. I didn't have the energy to hang it up. And in the morning, the thing was absolutely solid um, with salt. And I had to literally break the jacket so that I could wear it again. Um, it, it wasn't a good thing to do. Um, I, yeah. And I've never done anything like that again. That was a, a lesson learned the hard way. Um, it was so close to being something stupid happening. What about clothing? So uh, is is anybody wearing shorts underneath their riding no. pants? No, I wear no bicycle way. shorts. No, no. Grant, what did you say? I wear bicycle shorts, or um, LD Comfort in the U.S. makes some riding shorts. Um, I find cotton underwear or anything like that is just a recipe for disaster. I just can't take it. So bicycle shorts are just an amazing improvement for me. When we're talking layering, then, what you're saying is you're wearing just your riding pants and then shorts underneath? Bicycle shorts, that's it. Yep, I'm comfy. Works well for me. Jim, I wear silk underwear. Silk yeah, underwear. Susan wears silk. Mm -hmm. This silk is getting the most bizarre conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, I, let, let's get real now. All of a sudden, um, now I wear silk long johns. And the reason for that is because it stops um, a lot of the chafing that you get when you're really sweaty inside your bike gear. And I can rinse those out in the evening and they'll be dry within half an hour when it's those sorts of temperatures. So, you, you know, you've just constantly got this clean layer that's between your skin and um, your bike gear. I yeah. thought you'd wear silk just because you came from a wealthy family. <laughs> <laughs> I wear silk just because I can. <laughs> no, it's funny because Susan and I have had this discussion many times. I like the bicycle shorts and she swears by the silk. And I've got a pair of silk long johns that I travel with because they're about the size of my fist. And that's I keep them for warmth. But they actually are quite good for riding. But I prefer yeah. the... The bicycle shorts. One of the reasons I like the bicycle shorts is if it's stinking stupid hot, I can take my pants off and run, walk around in my bicycle shorts and no one blinks because they're bicycle shorts. And that's what bicyclists wear all the time. There's and that's a, fine. There's Correct. a picture I don't want in my mind. Hey, it's bicycle shorts. How many guys on bicycles do you see standing around in bicycle shorts all the time? It's fine. With pressure. How many guys do you see walking around in their silk underwear? <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you guys, but but I, 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 this seems just too far. This is oversharing, but I also have some silk underwear. Not a lot of it, but I got a couple of pairs of it, and it's quite good. It, it really is good for riding. Yeah. Uh, please, please don't post these photos. <laughs> Coming from a guy who just spent a, a half an hour pulling his buddy's pants off. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, Brian, what do you wear for underwear when you're riding? Oh, whatever I can, I've got. No, I, I'm not too particular. If I get hot, I stand up. I just stand up and let the breeze go through uh, all those parts that do get hot. And Shul uh, does the same, I think, don't you, darling? Yeah, I stand up at the when I get very hot on the back. But we actually we have those neck socks too that um, that have got the crystals in them, and you soak them for a while and put them on, and they really keep you cool for the whole day. They're, that's good. What are the crystals? Yeah, do? Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I haven't heard met anybody who's used them yet. And yeah, um, yeah we, yeah, we no, bought them at a bike show, and they, they were for. Um, I think they're sold as a, some for people who go hiking, but they work really well. So that worked out for us. And I've got zips in my jacket, which I just try and get a bit of breeze through. The trouble I have sitting on the back, and I'm a, a, a smaller person than my husband. I don't get a lot of air because I have a windbreak in front of me. So that can I can get pretty hot just because of that. Yeah. Brian, are you there? Oh, here we go. I was going to say, you, you are hot, love, but no, no, I won't go there. No, don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to change the subject a little bit and say that I'm, I'm actually missing one really important bit of equipment at the moment, um, and that's my sheepskin saddle cover. It, it's, it's the only thing that I've ever had stolen in, in the United States, and it was stolen at the beginning of this trip, and I really miss it, because sitting on a sheepskin is absolutely fantastic when it's hot. It's much cooler to sit on a sheepskin um, when you first sit down, rather than you know a vinyl or leather saddle um, cover. Um, and when you're riding, the sheepskin just wicks away the perspiration. That, and in, instead of you sitting uh, on damp, it's actually dissipating through the sheepskin. And I really noticed the difference. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Every bike I've had for probably the last 25, 30 years, I've put sheepskin covers on them because they're so comfortable. I've tried uh, those um, ear hook things, um, uh, which move too much for me. Uh, with less hair and all that sort of stuff, uh, but uh, we've we always travel with sheepskins, and now you can get uh, rain covers to put over the seat when uh, you you park bike. Um, but we've gone everywhere with sheepskins, and uh, they they are probably the most comfortable things you can sit on. I was going to say I do a combination of the two because I do have the air hawk because there's two different air hawks ones and the only difference is the the cover on them it's the same inside and so I use the cheaper of the air hawk and then I have a sheepskin over the top and because I think a lot a lot of people do is they just put too much air in their air hawk seats and it really yeah. is a, a just a minimal amount and that combination of those two things is uh, a real comfort it's comfort for as far as you know the, the hardness but it's also a comfort thing as far as temperature goes it's uh, yeah. it's ideal and because of that with the sheepskin and, and going back to because what we wear because nobody asked me what i wear <laughs> is, uh, I heard Commando from you. That's true, I heard that as well. <laughs> that oh, I just, I just had that, that penciled in. Camp Commando. <laughs> we'll just yeah. end that conversation there then. But yeah, yeah I, I can recommend the sheepskin, the sheepskin seat too. <laughs> <laughs> you are so predictable. <laughs> so, Graham, what kind of underwear do you wear? You always ask me this, Jim. Whenever every call, Jim. What are you wearing now? So what time is it? What are you wearing? <laughs> <laughs> so 
Sam, are you sure that uh, sheepskin was stolen? You might want to check the Animal Rescue uh, Society near you. <laughs> I tell you what, this sheepskin had a, um, 150,000 plus miles on it. So whoever's stolen it has got no idea that it's had my backside on it for all of that time. <laughs> Wow. We had a quarantine officer in Chile try to confiscate ours because he said it came from Argentina. So it took a long time to explain to him that it was an Australian sheep and then he let us keep it. Wow. How did yeah, you prove yeah, it was an Australian true. sheep? I just keep talking and in the end they just want me to go away. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good method. It works well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There's just one other thing that I, I think people should um, t should travel with, and that's um, when it's in these sort of um, conditions. I mean, it's common sense, but how many people have I met in the last few weeks that haven't had a wide-brimmed hat? Mm. And, you know, the, it, it, to me, that just makes no sense at all. You're getting off your bike, and you want to have some instant shade as you're pottering around. Um, and it's not only from the, the keeping it cool point of view, but it's also the damage that sun can do when you've had your head inside a crash helmet all of the time and you probably wiped off most of your suntan lotion and then you're sticking your head out into the, the, the rays straight away and walking around. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And talking of which, I've told you about my, um, my collapsible umbrella, I think, before. That's one of the best possible things you can have in weather like this. Um, you get off your bike and you swear I see, so you're just walking around with your own permanent pool of shade. And if you break down in this sort of weather, you've got some shade to work in because, you know, you just attach it on the side of the bike. I had a puncture the other day and I was so glad. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And uh, we carry both. We have uh, two umbrellas, little collapsible umbrellas. And uh, for us follically challenged gentlemen, uh, a hat is essential. Mm. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> even if you're not follically challenged, a hat is essential anyway. It just makes such a difference in keeping your yeah. hat. A baseball cap does a little bit, but really, like Sam says, the wide brim hat is ideal. Yeah. Well, the baseball cap's okay if you want to keep your nose out of the sun, but um, take it from me, you need to keep your ears out of the sun too, having just had um, surgery to remove cancers from my ears. So. Oh, mate. Right. There you go. Hope it all went well, Shirley. Oh, yes, it's all good now. You'd never even know. But, um, yeah, it was um, one of those things that just from all those years as a kid in Australia, we never wore hats, we never wore sunscreen. Um, and now you see kids in playgrounds in Australia, they all have wide-brim hats with the um, foreign legion flap at the back. But I think that's probably going a bit too far. But, yeah, a wide-brim hat is essential for many, many reasons. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, I guess we should we should probably move into picks and plugs. So why don't we start off with our picks, of course, as always. So we'll first start with Graham. What do you have for picks? Okay. Uh, yeah, I do. Um, and it, it's, it's very convenient, actually, that Brian's stuck up in a mountain in a snowstorm because uh, it's not really something for the Northern Hemisphere right now, but... This, I thought, was pretty obvious, but uh, I've mentioned it to so many people who are unaware of it, I've decided I'd mention it as a pick, and that is heated gloves as opposed to heated grips. It seems everybody's aware of heated grips, but this uh, winter, before I left uh, the UK to come down here to Bulgaria, it was February, and I got a pair of, uh, of 
Bloody hell, is someone in a prison there or something? <laughs> this is me sitting in, in the lobby of the hotel now, I'm afraid. Sorry. Sam's, that wander- Sam's wandering around the hotel to try and find better Wi-Fi with his computer in here. It's just knocking on doors, it's, opportunist. I'm, 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 I'm turning... I'm turning modern. My next book's going to be called In Search of Decent Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Well, it's slow, so slow there because everything you say is being monitored. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. So, heated gloves. So, so I got these Gerbing heated gloves. Now, I've always had heated grips from when I did dispatch riding back in the 80s all the time. And I find two things with them. One is you tend to grip the handlebars super tight, and eventually you realize how much your hands ache. And the other is your right hand is always warmer than your left hand because the throttle hand, uh, because it's the throttle, the, the heat doesn't dissipate through the handlebars like it does on the left hand. Now, with the heated gloves, it was just a warm environment. So there wasn't this sort of need to grip tighter. There wasn't this uh, just a feeling on the inside of your hands while the outside were, were still getting chilled from the wind. And it was a wonderful thing. And... Um, I mean, they're not a new invention by any means, but as I say, the amount of people I mentioned them to, uh, you'd think it was. People don't seem as familiar with heated gloves as they do heated grips, and I think they're a winner. I want a pair, and I want them now. (laughs) (laughs) How about silk glove liners? Surely I've got a pair of silk glove liners for you that are heated. Uh, I'll have those as well. Yeah. <laughs> I get, my hands get my hands old. get so cold, and I get sick to death of Brian saying, "Ooh, my hands are hot because I've got my heated hand grips on." Oh, you want to hit him? I know. You know. No domestics know. here, Shirley. No domestics here. You know another thing you can do, Shirley. I don't know what the bike is, but I, I saw recently for the same thing from a from a pillion who complained about cold hands. You can also get wrap round heated grips that actually wrap around. So rather than do the whole wiring thing. You just wrap them around the grips you've already got on the outside. Mm -hmm. And they wrapped them around the grab rails each side of the bike so the pillion could hold on to that. That's a good idea. Yeah, Yeah, that's not a bad idea. It's good. However, what are needed electric vests? Yeah, I've got one of those. Yeah. I think Shirley and Brian both have one. What about the rest of you? Yeah, I've got a vest. Oh, yeah, I've got one. I love it. Yeah, me too. It's got to be quite cold, I find, to actually turn my vest on. Just wearing the vest itself um, steps it up one for me. And then if it starts to get much cooler after that, then I put it on. And, I mean, I really only have it on, I think it's got four settings or maybe five settings. I only have it, like, sort of medium. It's uh, it's just really nice. But, of course, as everybody knows, warming up your torso warms up your hands the whole bit. Because if your body temperature is good with your, your torso, it circulates the blood around a, a lot better. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Uh, I've been using electric vests since 1981, and here's the shocker. The vest I bought in 1981, I'm still wearing it. Of course you are. Of course I am. (laughs) Now, the material is completely worn out, literally fell off the wires, and I was standing there with a handful of wires, so Susan sewed them into a down vest, and we wore that. I wore that around the world, and I'm still wearing it, and it still works, and it's still wonderful. And, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a word of warning with heated vests, and uh, surely you relate your story about uh, wearing one where you shouldn't have. <laughs> uh, yes, we went into the um, parliamentary palace in um, Bucharest, and I had my heated vest on underneath my jumper. I forgot to take it off, and they thought I was a bomb. 
yeah. when I went through when I went through the security. Um, so it took a bit of explaining as to why I had a jacket with a whole lot of wires on it um, going into this uh, secure area. Yeah. So that is a word of warning. I must remember to try that next time I'm flying. That'll be entertaining. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> As long as you're not on the same plane as us because it's going to delay departure, you being searched. No, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go early so that I can get full entertainment value. <laughs> I find it interesting that everybody here has an electric vest. And we were just, of course, at the Hub UK last weekend. And at one point in a session, somebody was talking about various things. And I said, electric vest is the answer for heat. And not a single person in the room had an electric vest. And only one had ever even heard of such a thing. I was blown away. That's why they're going to the hub. Yeah, to learn, absolutely. Uh, I, I remember back in 1981 when I bought mine, I was actually working in a dealership uh, that sold electric vests. And we had one on display. This is in Vancouver. We had one on display in the winter where, yes, we may get a little bit of snow, but mostly it's just very, very cold and wet and ugly. And this one that was on display was connected to a battery. The guys would come in, freezing, complaining about the cold, and I'd say, well, just put your hand in here. And they put their hand inside the vest and go, oh, my God. How much are they? But it's amazing how people just think, ah, you don't need that, you don't need that, you don't need that. Yes, you do. Yeah. They're absolutely yeah. Grant, Berger and I have headed up to, um, to, to, uh, towards Alaska. And actually, it was the cold that turned us around and um, headed us home again because, you know, or headed us south again. We, we just couldn't hack it. And there was snow on the ground as well. But we ducked across onto Vancouver Island. And um, we heard about a couple who lived in one of the forests there. And they had a home industry making heated vests. And those yep. were our first. And from that time onwards, it was actually warmer riding the bikes and being on the move than it was off the bikes and standing around. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Many's the time I've sat, stood off the bike doing something or taking a break, and I'm still plugged in because it's yep. wonderful. Yeah, I know. I, I We had a guarantee that uh, when we sold somebody a vest, if they were in doubt, if they decided they didn't like it, we'd give them 100% of their money back, no questions asked. Not one person ever took us up on it. I'll bet. Sam, what do you have for a pick? Okay, well, my pick is um, Owl Jesse's um, new Traveller pannier range. I've had the privilege for the last six and a half weeks to be um, riding one of Owl's bikes with his prototype of this luggage on. And to be quite honest with you, um, I started off being reasonably cynical about um, Jesse luggage oh, because I thought it was heavy and over-designed. Um, and actually what it ended up being was um, I'm just completely sold on it. Now this new Traveller range in particular is what's, what sold me about it. Um, two panniers, of course, and they're available in both 8-inch and 10-inch, and they're made with Al's usual bulletproof style. When I was in his um, his workshop in Phoenix at the beginning of the trip, they had panniers there that had been on multiple journeys with multiple dings and had survived. And one of the things that I particularly like about these panniers is the sloping front-forward edge of the bottom and the sloping base, uh, the sloping sides. Can you guys hear this? I'm hearing an awful lot of noise yeah, from somewhere. We can hear you. I think, I think somebody's yeah, cleaning yeah. the drawers. Right. <laughs> They're looking for their silk underwear. Dresser drawers. <laughs> okay. So, 
the reason that I like these slopes is because with my panniers, they're square at the front. The first time that um, I rode with um, square-fronted panniers and I dabbed my foot down on sand, I nearly ripped my heel off. So these sloping front edges are, are absolutely brilliant. Um, and for those people who like to, to scrape the sides of their boots, well, the, the sloping side edges of the, the panniers are, do a really good job at not scraping the edge of your panniers. But the, one of the things that absolutely sold me about this range is that Al has invented a very trick 41-litre top box that doesn't look like 41 litres. He calls it, jokingly, the pizza box. Um, but it still means, you know, when you're using this, you can still open the, the lids of the side panniers as well as, you know, without interfering with the, the, the top box. But this top box is trick for two reasons. The first reason is that you can slide it backwards and forwards on runners according to whether you're riding two up or whether you've got shed loads of luggage. So you can get the balance exactly right for whatever gear you're carrying. And I think that's such a simple idea, nice. but it works so smoothly. And the other thing that's very trick about this top box is that it has a solar panel on the top, which charges a battery tucked down inside the, um, inside the box. And to me, this is brilliant. You know, I've talked to people who've got solar panels and they get to a camping site and they set them up wanting to, to charge their stuff. But you know, the comment is, is it still gonna be there when I get back? With these solar panels on the top of the pan uh, the top box, what well, you're just charging all the day anyway. But also, if you're in one place, let's say you're wild camping for three or four days, well, your solar panels keeping your your electronic gizmos um, charged up without you having to turn the engine on and all that sort of stuff. Now, the yeah. other thing that he's done with this kit is that he's put um, a 1.7 gallon additional tank that just tucks in between um, the back wheel and the inside of one of the panniers. And on the F800GS that I'm riding at the moment, that additional 1.7 gallons, although I did squeeze 1.8 in, plus the fact that he's remapped the bike a little bit means that this bike will go for 320 miles before going on reserve, and I love that. Mm. Now, Al's making it for all sorts of different bikes, BMWs, KTMs, the New Africa Twin, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I'm just blown away with it. And I've done a fair bit of off-road riding since I've been in the States. And I like this stuff because it's solid. I'm getting no rattles and no bouncing around when I, when I hit a rut, no, no just unnecessary movements that are, are likely to, to give me a nudge in the wrong direction. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. I think you can probably tell that, can't you? Yes, yeah, we can. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the old Jesse Panniers too, but the ones we saw were huge. You could actually get inside them. They were his display <laughs> ones that he takes. Guys, I'm going to have to go. Uh, my uh, travelling companions want to put their pants on, so uh, I'm going to have to make a move. <laughs> well, you better help out, Brian. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys, and um, uh, that was a lot of fun. Great to have you yeah, on. Yeah, safe, I'm glad safe. you made safe it trip despite back, the snow. Stay warm. Ride safe. Thanks, mate. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Shirley, do you have a pick? Look, I do. Um, it's it's um, a, a, a website called Motorcycle Investor. And um, while I don't like Brian looking at this because we have no room for any more bikes, um, it's got a lot of information on bikes that are for sale in Australia, which isn't so good for the international audience. But it does have um, websites on people who are restoring bikes, stories about restored bikes, information about books like um, Ian Falloon's book on the complete book of BMW motorcycles, 
um, how to links to you know how to work on different sections of your bike, um, and it's run by a guy called Guy Allen who is a very well-known and well-respected journalist in Australia who also writes under the name of Guido, um, who a lot of people would know from Australian Motorcycle News and Motorcycle Trader and Two Wheels over the years. So I'll um, send you the link for that, Jim. But anyone who's interested in old motorbikes um, and all things about the motorcycleinvestor.com. Dot com. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you there. Mm. Motorcycleinvestor.com. Dot com. And you said there's more than just bikes for sale. There's information on there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's information and there's links to um, some things that are up for auction. There's links to music that he likes that goes with certain bikes. There's um, links to places that, as I say, restore or help you with it or places that have got lots of information on the individual bike that he's um, uh, he's referring to. The one I'm looking at has got an MV Augusta that was on the European market, went for 105,000 euros. So there's a lot of information on that sort of bike. Wow, that's very interesting. Very um, easy. Put that on our price range. Yeah, just, uh, <laughs> yeah, we were going to buy two of them, but there you go. We had to pass Couldn't get on the that. pair. Yeah, that's why I would hesitate no. as well. Grant, do you have a pick? I don't really have a pick. I think uh, my electric vest, uh, the conversation we had on that would be my pick. I'm, I'm so constantly amazed that people don't have electric vests and think that they're silly and not ne- not necessary. Uh, I they just think, think that until they actually wear one. Yeah, yeah. yeah that you, seems to be you, the issue. As for soon sure, as you when try you wear one, you just it. can't believe how good it feels. Like, there's just, on that slightly cool day, it's no doubt. Some people think that just to do um, motorcycle trips, you actually need to be uncomfortable. And in, and in pain, yeah, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all to me. I want to have no. a good time and enjoy myself and be warm. Um, exactly. I was just going to say, the other thing about heat is best, people think it's for extreme cold. But in actual fact, it's just lovely as a muscle relaxant. It's just like a little hug. It's like a, just some warmth therapy. And it just actually stops you feeling achy when you get off your bike. You don't have to be riding in sub-zero temperatures to put it on. They're very beneficial in just cold days. Yeah, and it also it means you don't have to wear so many layers so you don't feel and look like the Michelin man. Uh-huh. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we were in uh, Norway in the, in the middle of winter, or sorry, in the middle of summer in Norway. But as soon as you get up to some altitude, we hit snow. And all we had on was like a shirt, the electric vest, a light, light fleece, and our riding jackets. That was it. And we were fine, even though it was snowing. And there was one guy there that was so bundled up, he did look like the Michelin man. And he was not comfortable, but we were fine. So I, I think... and. and like we never go anywhere without our vests. We're in Wales right now, heading for Ireland, and we've got our electric vests with us. That's just like a necessity. Necessity. It's a basic thing. And think about how often you go for a ride. It's a beautiful sunny day. It's lovely. You stop for a nice dinner. You relax for a bit. And as you head home, you go over a mountain pass, and it's freezing cold because the sun's gone down. Click that electric vest on, crank it up a little bit, and you're toasty. And the other thing I think that I want to say is people don't realize that they may be just a little chilly, but they're actually getting towards hypothermic and their brains aren't working as well. They're not safe to ride. They shouldn't be out there because they're just that little bit extra too cold. If you've ever ridden along and you're chilly and you're huddled in and you're doing the turtle, pulling your neck in, trying to keep warm and 
you realize that you're just a little bit slow to react, you're hypothermic, seriously hypothermic. Turn the electric vest on, you're no longer hypothermic. I think it's a huge safety thing as well as a comfort thing. I totally agree with you, Grant, and it's it's exactly that in another way too, because when you're that cold, you're distracted. You're not yeah, paying oh. full attention to, to where you're riding and how you're riding. Um, and yeah, well, I mean, how many times have we all fallen off our bikes? No, maybe not, um, because we, we've not been concentrating. Yep, that's that's 99% of the time why you fall off your bike, because you're not focused in the right direction. Yep. Well, for myself, my pick is uh, the DeLorme InReach Explorer. Now, um, we did a, an episode some time ago on, on communication devices and emergency communication devices. This is one of them. With um, it's got it's one of these things where you can do um, SOS. You know, you press it, and, you, and some depending on where you are, somebody comes and rescues you. Supposedly worldwide, but the thing that I've really been blown away by is the convenience of the two-way text messaging that it has because we have been in the past couple of weeks in a lot of remote places we're just there's there's absolutely no cell service there's no radio communication i've got a, a two meter ham radio and, a, and and it covers a bunch of other bands no communication whatsoever and this explorer just made it that you know easy to to get a text message in it was it it just made all the difference and really it's I, I guess it's if you have somebody at home who's wondering where you are and are you okay and in this case it's our kids and just to be able to get that text message and and be able to make that connection with them and not worry it's it's peace of mind for them but what i really noticed on this trip both elizabeth and i noticed is that it's peace of mind for us as well so we know that they know we're fine and we know what's going on there it's just a it's just a really great thing. And I mean, I know some people will say the purest of the world. And I know I think I can be one of those sometimes who say, well, you know, why, why bother being in, in touch? You know, it's great to be out of touch. I guess it depends on what your, what your connections are with other people, you know, how much you want to stay in touch. So I would say if you, if you have kids, especially if you have people you want to stay in touch with, I think this Explorer is absolutely amazing. And we've had a lot of fun with it so far and it also does has a bunch of things on here of course you can check in and you can track and the one new feature it has on it uh, they've added uh, checking the weather so they've got they give you a weather forecast wherever you are the downside of course it is cost it's expensive to buy it is um i think you have to pay uh, in the in canadian funds here at 75 dollars a month for the unlimited texting which i would gladly pay to to be able to to stay in contact through that way so anyway something to consider especially for people who are traveling i just wish brian had it the weather forecast wouldn't that have been helpful <laughs> he yes. wouldn't have looked at it surely that's true yeah good point yeah. <laughs> so on the plugs graham what do you have for a plug today uh oh it's really simple actually i went down to motor camp today and we were talking about horizons unlimited because they host their horizons unlimited uh event on the 8th 9th 10th of july so it's coming up pretty soon now and i'm going to be doing the last or the the main or prime or whatever you want to call it presentation on the friday evening and on the Saturday evening is Jack Lucasen, the crazy Dutchman, who's also a long-haired, left-handed Libran like myself, uh, but has done some far more extreme stuff. So he's going to be presenting on the Saturday night. I'm going to be on the Friday night, and that is uh, on the weekend of the 8th, 9th, 10th of July, uh, which is next month, isn't it? Wow, Friday Fantastic. night. You're the star on Friday night. Well, I prefer it. They, they said, you want to do Saturday? And I said, well, firstly, Jacques come in much further than I am. 
Uh, and, and Jack had asked for uh, accommodation, food, and alcohol. And I said, oh, do I get accommodation, food, and alcohol? They said, yeah, because it's a lovely house at the end of the village. You can stay there. It's like, that's my house. <laughs> <laughs> but I prefer to do Friday nights, well, for two reasons. Firstly, because then I know my presentation is done and I don't have to keep going to the toilet every half an hour for the next day and a half. And secondly, people know what I've done and then I can have other conversations rather than say the same thing over and over again all weekend long. So, yeah, I'm on Friday nights. I was just going to say, we just had Jacques Lucasen at the Hub UK event and his presentations we're always delighted to have him because he's always amazing. The stuff he's done is just, he's my hero. He just blows me away with, with the things he's done. It's fantastic. And he's a very good speaker. So if you're anywhere near Bulgaria, go for it. Well, what's the name of Jacques' book, um, Grant? Because Which he recently one? had it translated into um, English, didn't he? Oh, it's I've got it. Back. I can't remember the name of it. It's, I can't remember. No, I'm having a... I'm having a, a it's called Life on Two Wheels. Brilliant. Thanks, Graham. It's on the bookshelf with all the other books worth having. There's something called Into Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks, Graham. I'll pay you later. (laughs) Something called uh, Circle to Circle or something. (laughs) Thank you. Nice. Sam, what do you got? Okay, well, mine's an event as well. Um, The Overland Magazine event from the 26th to the 29th of August, which is um, being held near Oxford this year. Um, and it's presentations and test rides. Um, they're going to have a whole stack of um, new um, bikes out from different manufacturers, um, authors doing presentations, workshops, cinema, historic and modified bike shows. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what that's all about. But, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this as a plug was because um, I missed the Hub UK this year because I'm here. And it was the Hub UK is like family. Um, and I'm hoping a lot of the people that I meet at um, the Overland event are going to be people who, who will have been at Hub um, this last weekend. So um, I'll be able to, to make those family connections again. Sounds like you guys got some good events coming up. Um, Shirley, what do you have? Oh, well, we don't have any events because it's winter. <laughs> but I guess the only thing I can plug and seeing we've... Um, Graham's very kindly plugged um, Circle to Circle. Don't forget The Long Way to Vladivostok is available, which is our new book. And I should share with you a story. We launched it um, last month at BMW Southbank, a big dealership here in Melbourne. And uh, as we were packing up to leave, I slipped and fell over and broke my shoulder. And it's the worst injury I've ever had coming off the bike at 95 kilometres an hour. I just got a bruised backside. Um, And my worst injury is falling over in a BMW dealership. All the gear, (laughs) all the time. I had my gear on and my motorcycle. And um, I had my helmet in one hand and I think that's probably why I broke my shoulder because I tried to protect the helmet. Oh, don't do that again. So um, I will never forget the book launch for um, The Long Way to Vladivostok, that's for sure. Wow. How's the prognosis? I, the healing oh, yeah, it's good. It's, it's getting better. Um, I've got a lot more movement in it now, but it's one of those injuries that all you can do is hold it still. You can't um, put it in a cast or anything. So, yeah. Um, yeah, back to the doctor tomorrow for another checkup, but hopefully I'll be able to drive in another couple of weeks. Good. It just goes to show it is a dangerous world out there, isn't it? 
Oh, yeah. motorcycling's really dangerous. Don't go to dealerships. They've no. got I, I argue motorcycling floors. is safe. Surely that did not happen to you on a motorcycle. You know, you were in a building. No, it there. didn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the motorcycle Worst is injury safe. ever. <laughs> I generally find the pain a little bit lower down when I go to a dealership. <laughs> <laughs> Grant, what do you have for a plug? Um, right now, I want to talk about a couple of our events. Of course, we just finished the Hub UK, which was fantastic. We'll be opening registration for that hopefully in the next month or so. And we're just heading now to one of our favorite events, Ireland. HU Ireland is always an amazing, fun event. The Irish are so welcoming, so friendly. It's just fantastic fun. So if you're anywhere near Ireland, we're in Enniskillen, Northern Ireland next weekend, this coming weekend. And the other event I wanted to talk about is the HUM, which is coming in Spain. And that's going to be a fun event. The information's on the website. For those who've never heard of a hum, it's a navigation challenge. It's all about how to ride off-road through some interesting, fantastic roads. We're in Aragon in the middle of Spain. And it's all about trying to figure out how to navigate around the world. So you get some points and books, and we send you out and have a good time. It's a great ride. The web information is on the website, horizonsunlimited.com slash hum. And that is coming up. Sounds like a lot of fun out there. I think um, that about wraps things up, doesn't it? Oh, I need to mention one other thing. Adventure Rider Radio will be live at Can West at the end of August. That's Don't true. miss it. That's true. We're going to be there recording this show, as a matter of fact, which should be quite entertaining if you think about how this recording went. <laughs> when, when people say, I don't know how many people are going to be there, but it'll be quite entertaining to, to go through this and, and feel the pressure of eyes seeing on you and sit thinking, you know, is this it? Well, if both the listeners are there, can you take a photo for us, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, what we'll have to do is hopefully we'll have some internet there that'll, it'll be half, that'll be half decently quick and we'll have to get some, um, some video feed. Uh, that will be interesting, at least be more interesting probably for the people sitting listening rather than just staring at Grant and I, unless anyone else has decided to show up for this. Now, uh, can I just ask then? what time of the day this is going to be? Same. It's Long time. Uh, oh, excellent. But well, I'll, if you're doing video, I'll have to get up earlier so I'm not in my pajamas sitting at the kitchen bench talking to you. <laughs> Why? That's part of the fun, Shirley. Mm, I'll get some silk underwear just to be with the guys. <laughs> a good idea. Excellent. Okay. Nice talking. <laughs> well, that's great, everyone. Thank you very much. And the after show party, I believe, today. Well, why don't we just have it here in Lillooet? It's really nice here. It's sunny, like slightly, you know, a little bit of cloud here and there, but it's a beautiful, warm day. It's quite warm, actually. Why don't you all come here? Sounds like good a plan. plan. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll throw another shrimp on the Barbie. <laughs> 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 okay, take care, everyone. Thanks. Okay, Shirley. Shirley, 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 Shirley before you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, two things I want to tell you really quickly. Uh, one Nobody is hangs exactly up as we all sit and listen. <laughs> Why would we hang out? It's generally entertaining. Um, that retirement clock that you got that just had the days on it. Yep. That was awesome. I just Isn't managed, it fantastic? Oh, I just managed to find one on eBay for the shed because I thought that is brilliant. It just, <laughs> just as the yeah. days of the week, not the time of the day. <laughs> it's perfect. It is perfect. A friend of ours gave it to Brian as a, as a retirement gift, and it really is. And it's very handy because when you don't have to go to work, sometimes you really don't know what day it is. It oh, is a great clock. 
When I looked it up on it, we put a search in. They have these things called Alzheimer's and dementia clocks, and it just says it's Wednesday afternoon. It's Friday. <laughs> 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 Oh, and the I'm only so other thing I was going to tell you, Shirley, was um, I never sit still, and I've just sat still for two hours, and you have never seen such a contented kitten sitting on my lap. He's just amazing. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love cats, and we have a 16-and-a-half-year-old cat, so um, she doesn't like these days so much because I get out of bed too early for her. She sleeps on the bed with me, so oh. <laughs> I'm glad you've got a contented cat there. I have. She's lost. Okay, that's okay. all I have to say. Go. Graham, great to have you back. Okay, thank you for having right. me back. Good to talk to you all. <laughs> talk to you okay, on next see month. You all see you guys. Month. Okay. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Well, that about wraps things up for this week. Well, no, sorry, this month, because it's a once-a-month show. you got to drop back next month to find out what's going to happen. Remember, if you want to find out more, drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and you can go forward slash raw, or you can just click on the raw button. Don't forget to subscribe. You have to subscribe separately to this show. It's a different show than regular Adventure Rider Radio. And hey, if you like what you're hearing and you want to keep it coming to you free, consider dropping us a donation. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the donate button. And I want to give special thanks, of course, to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, and, of course, to the co-hosts, Sam Manicom, Grant Johnson, Shirley Hardy-Ricks, Brian Ricks, and, of course, Graham Field. My name is Jim Martin, and this has been Adventure Rider Radio Raw.